Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. episode of feather and fur and tonight we have returning guest ryan eater welcome back to the show sir hey thanks i'm glad to be back we didn't get to finish our last talk so now we get to we didn't i'm excited too because the last episode for those that didn't listen to it you should go check it out i will look up the show number and put it in the description because i didn't become didn't come prepared but our last episode really focused on puppy selection and creating behaviors in those puppies it's really those first stages where it's tonight. Now we can dig a little bit more into the training and that, that first level of training with these younger dogs. I think that's exactly uh, how I would say it. You know, we wanted to first get everyone the right puppy, right? And, and that was the point of the discussion. Although you and I both know we don't always start with a puppy. Sometimes a dog comes into our life at an older age or, you know, different circumstances. But nonetheless, all of our training is based on a lot of early condition behavior. And, you know, in a general sense, what I focused a lot on in our last conversation was how do we get a puppy to start focusing on us and understanding that working with us brings reward. Uh, they start to learn what behaviors get rewarded and earns them, you know, anything that gets them excited. We're a big fan of treat training around here. Sure. Um, you know, in the most simplest form ever, a canine works for food. You know, um, a lot of people are naysayers on that, and that's fine. If it's a toy that drives them, whatever it is, you know, if you look at working dogs in any discipline, our bomb detection dogs, a lot of our military dogs that are sniffing out narcotics or, or, or explosives, that tennis ball is their life. Right. Oh, so, yeah. You know, at early ages, maybe, you know, their obedience training was rewarded with that ball. I mean, whatever. Um, but now we have to take that focus 
and that puppy that understands to follow our hand for a treat knows that if they sit or get on a place board or come when called, you know, some of the simplest things, they follow food and get rewarded for going somewhere, doing something. And now we have to build that into, you know, consistent behavior, repetitious, assigning a command, and then getting consistency with that command. And, you know, as hunters, we all know there's a lot of things we need our dogs to do reliably. And for a lot of us, the wheels come off, you know, when we're in the field or we're in the real deal. And I think if we talk about that a little bit more, I think we can clear that up. I think we can help people through a lot of that because, you know, if you've already got the dog learning commands and doing it, you've, you've done a lot of the heavy lifting. Now we have to drive it home and solidify it. So, yeah. Right. Maybe it take, it may be counterintuitive. Like I agree. We should touch base on that when we get there. It's a little too early in the conversation now, but yep, yep. what we might say might seem not a lot. It might seem like, well, that doesn't really make sense, but it, it it's almost like slowing down at a pause to really make sure you can launch forward. And we'll get more yep. into that for sure. But that's really how I look at it. Like, like you said, like we've, like, I believe you even said this in the last episode, it's a, it's a crawl, walk, run. Yep, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, some of the more popular DVDs or instructionals out there that all of your listeners probably have on their shelf, you know, like a George Hickox in the pointing dog world. Sure. He, he literally just says, look at your grades, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, just go through those steps, but don't work on fifth grade if third grade's not done. Right. You know, and, and so I, I know we're going to expand on all this and get into specifics, <laughs> but we were talking early puppies, you know, we were talking, I talked a little bit about how we raise a litter and what goes on from day one till eight weeks of age, but you and I focused a lot on eight to 12, 16 weeks of age, you know, at the oldest four months, right. which is, that's still a baby, but it's amazing what we can do at that age to set ourselves up and our dogs up for success. Um, and now, you know, we have to start thinking about those dogs that are, I'll say five months, but let's just look at that six to nine months age, or maybe even close to a year in some cases. Now it's time to get into some formal training, you know, where sit really does mean sit, woe means woe. I mean, whatever command you want to talk about doesn't matter. Right. But right. we are, our expectations and our standards are going to raise significantly. And so we have to do that in a way that's fair. We have to do that in a way where um, it's very clear the dog understands it's being asked of it. And, you know, uh, in our little pre-talk, uh, Brad, you, you made a great comment about the word pressure, you know, and, and yes, pressure is part of training. I mean, just a verbal correction is pressure by definition, right. but balancing that with fairness and, and, you know, punishment fitting the crime, so to speak, and considering the dog's experience. And, uh, you and I had a lot of good little, uh, you know, exchanges here in our pre-convo that I know are going to carry over here. But ultimately, when we get a dog into the field, what is a reasonable expectation? What does that timeline look like? And the answer is, I mean, it's different for every dog. And probably some of the worst things you can do is to have this preconceived notion of what that is. I think you need to be more um, in the moment and respond to the dog that you have. I'm not saying be reactive in everything, but if a dog's not ready, don't will it to be ready. Just work at it right. and get them there. You know, I mean, uh, so I'm sure we're going to get there, but I just, it was really important. And I really appreciate the chance to follow up on this conversation because I think people do a really good job with that little puppy and they got them waiting for their food on the ground and they can send them to go eat. And you start thinking, oh man, this is going great. 
but you're having a heck of a time getting that dog steady or you know you're you're going on your first hunt and you haven't you know gun conditioned this dog yet or right you know there's just a lot of things that i think we should go over and kind of just talk about the building blocks a little bit just to help people kind of go to you know stage two so to speak agreed 100 percent. and these building like and you're building a foundation those behaviors are the very first level they might let's call them the basement and now we're looking at like building that first floor on top of it yeah i mean for sure those those established behaviors are great but i mean it's really we're talking i mean i don't even know if i think we're still in the basement to be honest because right now we're really talking about starting that we foundation are. for everything to come yeah we are but you know there's some things in the basement that don't get enough uh light or enough focus sure. and most in simple form just teaching that dog to work with you and not be concerned about something else that's going on you know around you okay we talk about socialization and puppies and what that really means and a, a lot of people and i'm not i'm not knocking anybody but they think that's just taking the dog to menards or home depot and exposing it to smells people and and going to a dog park where it can see other dogs and I am not going to tell you that isn't part of it. I'm not going to tell you there aren't positives to some of those things. But really what socialization is, is teaching a dog that ultimately my expectations of you and the behaviors that I've rewarded, I, I would love for those to be consistent no matter where we are, who's around, what's going on around us. And I don't even want you to really pay attention to those things. I want you focused on me. I don't care if we're in the crowd at an Aerosmith concert. I want you looking at me wondering sure. what I'm doing next. And that's not easy to do. I mean, these dogs, you know, you and I are, we're on a hunting podcast. So we're talking about sporting breeds that are inquisitive. They've got drive. They're intelligent. They notice what's going on around them. And so we need to teach these dogs, hey, those are all great qualities. But at the end of the day, we're working together. I don't right. want you chasing butterflies. I want you over here. I don't want you focused <laughs> on it. And, and it all starts with those early things in the first episode that we talked about. So obviously I would refer people back to that because we can't rehash right. all that right now, but we have to start taking that puppy's focus, which is a conditioned behavior. You know, um, we don't use a clicker, not because we're against it. Actually, there's some positives to a clicker. We, we, we just tell a dog, yes or no. We mark the behavior with a yes or a no, and then we give them a treat or a reward. Um, but a clicker is essentially the same thing. You click, they do it right. You give them a treat. Right. Well, but before you get into clicker training, you do what's called charging the clicker. Every time you click, you give them a treat. So it's Pavlov's dogs. They associate the click with the treat. And so that was all episode one. You know, we talked about that. Well, now what we're going to do is now that that dog understands how to focus on us. and so we've added I, looked value. Up, I, I looked it up real quick because we've referenced it twice now. So it was season five. So it was last year, episode 85. So you can there go you back go. on our podcast and look it up. It's it's real easy to find on YouTube. You can just you can just Google fe or just YouTube Feather and Fur Podcast. Ryan Eider comes right up. South, yeah. South Fork Retrievers. So I know we've referenced it twice. I wanted to call it out in case anybody had to drop off quickly or didn't pick up where we left off or something like that. So, yep, season five, episode eighty-five. Well, I'm glad I know because I had some people asking which one the they didn't want to listen to this one when it comes out until they go back and listen. So <laughs> I'll let them know, but. Uh, you know, once you have that dog focused on you and offering the behaviors that they've been conditioned to know are positive, they get a treat for it, they're repetitive. Okay, well, now let's let's go forward a little bit and start applying that to some more formal, you know, training with a little bit more expectation and higher standards. And then uh, I think you and I agree, 
somewhere in there, we got to start thinking about their work and their field exposure and all that goes with that. So I don't know how you want to funnel this, but, you know, I think that we have to kind of mix up our, how we're going to up the ante in our actual training and then other things that we need to show these dogs uh, so that their occupation is a little bit more clear to them, you know, as they progress. And, you know, what I love about this conversation is that it makes no difference what breed you're talking about here or what your application is. I mean, you and I both love hunting over good dogs. I don't care what they are, but it's still right. got to be done right, you know. And so um, I'll let you take the reins. I mean, basic obedience to me is basic obedience. And for pointers and flushers, that's going to might have some different terminology because you're going to have some, some people, pointer guys don't like the word sit. That, I mean, their first focus is whoa, retrieve. I mean, flat, I mean different terminology but at the end of the day if you say sit if you say whoa if you say here they have to respond and, and follow that command they have to follow that action that comes with repetition consistency and teaching of the command you got to make sure they don't you have to that's one thing where i think a lot of people don't necessarily understand is i think they move on too quick and they think the dog really knows what the word sit means when yeah. i don't think it actually does yet and they went too quick to that next step Whereas like you come back in a couple of weeks and you tell your dog sit now, maybe it doesn't sit real well because I'm not sure it ever actually understood what that word meant yet. I think you're, I think you're exactly right. You know, I mean, you know, I agree because we've kind of cheated and <laughs> talked about this, but um, you know, I, I guess my example would be, and it's right in line with what you said, you know, I think somebody, and again, you and I have both admitted, you know, it, 20 years ago when somebody told you, Hey, get a puppy. They would tell you, don't do anything for a while. Wait until they're six, eight, nine months old. Maybe even I've heard people say a year, you know, So um, and then they throw a rope around the dog and start teaching it obedience and they don't understand why the dog is so wigged out. And if you really look at it from the dog's perspective, I mean, it went from never being under complete control at all to on a rope that it's never experienced before. It's freaked out by the rope alone, which clouds the whole rest of your training session. And so fast forward 20 years, and I'm, I don't know that that's the accurate number of years, but fast forward to modern times. I mean, what we've learned about dog behavior and comprehension, how they interpret information, those puppies that learn to come for a treat and sit on a place board and start assigning behavior to a reward. And, and like you said, ingraining the meaning of what a command really is. I want them doing it before they know what the command is. Sure. I don't care if they know what here means. I care that when I clap and, and say here or, hey, pup, 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 whatever it is, and they come to me and get a reward, they start learning. You know, when I check in with dad, good things happen. Right. And, and that's a puppy that's not running off. That's a puppy that's not giving me problems elsewhere. They're worried about where I'm at. Now, if you're a pointer guy and you got a dog running 150 yards, 500 yards, you know, depending where in the country, what cut, what you're doing, a dog that cares where you are is important. You want that dog right. to turn with you and go with you. And if we're talking grouse woods or open prairie, it makes no difference. And it's no different with a retriever. When you're in here sitting by me, good things are happening. And then you can do, you know, whatever work you want to do. So we ingrain these behaviors early and then we can assign a command. But to your point, I mean, at what point do the collar and leash need to be introduced? Because those two sure. things can't, they can't be a distraction. They need to be a training tool. Right. So I, I guess what I would say very simply, and I don't have a fancy way of saying it, you're not going to quote me, but at the end of the day, I would never assign a command and enforce it with any tool until they actually know what that behavior is first. Right. Okay. So if they'll sit for a treat, that's great. 
But then simultaneously somewhere else, I'm going to put it. I always put a puppy collar on my dogs so they get used to wearing something because sure. obviously for the rest of their life, a collar sure. is in the, it's in their future. Right. And then I'll let them drag ropes or leads or check cords around the field. And I'm not doing anything with it at all, but they got to get used to having it on. So it doesn't become a distraction. And then once they're sitting for treats and they're doing this, you know, kind of in a freelance form where I don't have any real control of this dog, they just know to be by me and work with me. I can start working that in, but notice I didn't just throw a, a lead on them and start making them sit with any kind of pressure or physical manipulation. Right. And, and I think a lot of people do that, Brad. I think a lot of people throw a collar and a lead around a dog and they just start like, well, why doesn't he get it? I mean, think about how traumatizing that could be. Sure. You know, Especially for a 12 week old puppy. Right. And we're talking young puppies right now. Like at that point, we're talking, to, we're not talking a nine month old dog that you, like for me, I rescued my lab at nine months. He knew what a leash was. He knew what a collar was. He knew what sit was. It was never enforced. He knew what down was. So for me, it was, all right, let's just walk him on a leash and get him kind of leash proper. So he's used to all that. And then like, all right, let's apply a little bit. Like, let's start making, working on sit to make sure he knows sit. And that way there, he was used to the leash. He was used to the collar, but we're talking an older dog. We're not yeah, but keep in mind, not, not every nine month is going to know. True. That's exactly. You know I mean, I guess you were ahead there because I'll tell you what, there's, there's plenty. Of, I told you, I've gotten dogs in my kennel from another breeder who, I mean, they're great people, great trainers, but you know, we all know we get busy. We keep a puppy out of a litter if, and I'm not a professional trainer. I'm a breeder who really trains hard, but I, you know, the professional trainers will tell you if they keep a puppy out of a litter or they get a puppy from a breeder, their dogs sit because they're getting paid to train your dog or my dog or anybody. Right. And so all of a sudden a year goes by and you've got this really good dog on paper, but it's behind on life, you know? Right. And so you throw that lead on there. My point is, Nobody thinks about, wow, I should introduce my dog to a collar and a leash. I should introduce my dog to some of the training tools that it's going to be subjected to. I, we've recently got into German short hairs and we've had one litter and, and they're eight, eight months old. It's going great. And I'm, I'm excited about it. But the reason I'm bringing that up is I let my five and six month old German short hairs run around with a belly collar on. Sure. It's not turned on. I'm, I'm never going to give stimulation to a dog that hasn't been through all of the manual processes first. And right. I'll talk about that in a second, because it's exactly what you just touched on. But I want them to get used to that feeling. I don't want to put it on for the first time when we think it's time to collar, you know, condition the dog for a belly collar on woe. And now that dog is so focused on that uh, uncomfortable feeling that they're not even hearing me. And right. so you know, I've learned this through dabbling and getting into this, but I, I really think a lot of people watch a DVD and they strap that collar on and they start pushing buttons and they start, you know, they just feel like osmosis is going to happen. I understand it. So you should understand it and let's move forward. And unfortunately, I wish they could learn that way. I'd have a right? lot better dogs. Yeah, no kidding. Or we'd but, have better humans. Depends <laughs> which way osmo osmosis worked. But you know what? No, I mean, people look aside, at this upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. 
Stop by your local Decova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Oh, oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead, Brad. Oh, Sorry. I was going to say, you just kind of touched base on that. Like, it's funny because you talk to a lot of people and they're like, well, yeah, make, have your dog wear their e-collar for a little bit so they get used to it beforehand. Like, that's such common. Like, I feel like that's relatively common advice, especially with an e-collar on the neck. But you're right. They don't do it for the belly collar. They don't do it for a leash. They don't and do not, it for not a everybody collar. Does, not everybody does a belly collar. So, I mean, right. you know, in, in fairness, if that's not part of your program, okay. But I'll tell you what, it's no different than a, than a, a, a rope around the belly or a check cord or, you know, some of these other methods that we use. I mean, I, I know the, the Smith method, uh, Rick and Ronnie Smith. I mean, they're arguably some of the most famous types of pointing dog seminars you can go watch all over the country right now. I know that they kind of have a silent command system where it's not a lot of commands. It's physical pressure on the dog, a check cord, a post. The dog can't possibly break on the bird because it's restricted. Mm-hmm. I can't speak to it. I'm not familiar with it, but I know the basics of it. And I think it obviously works great. But again, if that dog's never had a, a cord around its its belly at all, you know, I picture a dog rolling like an alligator the first few times it feels well, for that. sure. You know, and that's all normal probably. But why would you want to encounter that at six and seven months of age when you're trying to move on with it and, and get up to that level of, okay, my dog's understanding to stop. My dog's understanding to let me get in front and make a and make the flush. And of course, I'm talking pointing dogs with the flushers. Right. We're t- we'd have to come up with another example, but um, I think it's really important to to break things down to the finest detail. And if you're the dog, what things are going to change as I progress with my training that could throw them off? Whether it's environmental, whether it's physical, something they're going to wear, something they're going to feel. Am I going to change anything that I do? You know, I mean, I teach dogs to sit on lead while walking at heel, but eventually I teach my retrievers to sit on a whistle out in front of me. Sure. Well, to, to the dog, physically, I'm not in the same position anymore. I'm walking out ahead of them and asking them to stay there and then work with me at it from a different angle, from a different vantage point. It sounds dumb, but that's a different thing to them. That's a change yeah. that needs to be accounted for. And you know what? That's valid with all of your, you know, you've got the the wire hairs or the griffons. I mean, Navda, you're running a blind at the invitational. It's the same thing. The dog sits on a whistle, turns around, has to take a hand signal. We have to teach them to sit on a whistle at a distance. Well, it all starts with the same sick command that you taught at eight weeks old. Right. How do we transition it and how do we we expand those expectations? And so um, you use the word common sense. And I got to say, I mean, that's really the answer. You just have to look at it from their perspective. You know, they don't, they don't 
speak English and have a conversation with us the way you and I are talking right now. So how do we account for that and set them up for the most, um, I don't know, least amount of stress, least amount of confusion and, and make sure that they have a way to succeed and get rewarded for that success so that they start quickly going, okay, this is what's getting me out of this, or this is what's working. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, if you have anything specific that you want to touch on or a certain behavior, we could do it. But I think people get the idea, you know? I don't have anything super specific to talk. I mean, but you're, I mean, it really comes down to consistency, I think is huge. And people really need to be consistent in their commands, in how they enforce their commands. So, I mean, I, I feel like some people, maybe some, like I've, I've seen other trainers like bounce all over the board not professional mm-hmm. trainers, amateur trainers like me, but I've seen them kind of bounce all over the board. And I agree, dogs get burnt out. Like you have to mix things up. And I'm not saying work on sit for six weeks straight. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm. But when you work on sit, be consistent with it. Follow the same approach, follow the same method. Or another thing, follow the same, like if you're gonna like follow one training program, because I think there's a lot of people that also like, oh, I'm gonna follow this training program. Now this training program. Now, and, that can send mixed messages too. So I really feel like consistency when you are starting and throughout the entire process is huge. Yeah. Paralysis by analysis is real. Uh, if, if you, and, and here's the thing, I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth because I, you, you're dead on. If you try to take something from every program and you're jumping all over the place, that's a problem. But it's also not a bad thing to explore other programs and and take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. What works? What doesn't? What do I like? And and some people are really good at that because they can say, I know my dog. Okay. And so when I see this program is a little more suited to my dog, but when I get to level, you know, the fifth level or, yeah, and I'm making that up. There's, I don't know that there's anything by level, but when I get to this stage of training, I really like the way this guy does it because for my dog, I think this is going to be more clear. I think they're going to respond more favorably. You know, I can't use the collar on my dog the way that this guy's suggesting or whatever. And right. that's a terrible example, but you know what I mean? I know exactly, um, what, I know exactly what you mean. Cause we're learning how to read our dogs in the process of training as well. Like you're learning your dog and being exposed to more training programs is great because everybody does things. I mean, you have the West method now, which is really, which I don't want to say it's new, but it's definitely gaining a lot more popularity where it's far more rewards based, um, especially mm-hmm. like for like upland dogs. And that's a very different method than some of your more, let's go tradi- more traditional style training programs. And if you're trying to do both at the same time, you're going to send some very mixed results to your dogs. But maybe if you're going to follow the West method and your dog's like, and you're reading your dog and you're like, you know, I could apply a little pressure here in a smart way to help enforce this command. And it's going to leap us farther forward. Like, it's not like, and, but you have to like, you have to read your dog. Like, I mean, I think that's really what it comes down to. And kind of trust yourself. Brad, you gotta, you have to prioritize reading your dog before you prioritize learning a training program. Sure. And I think I think a lot of people learn a training program and try to force it on their dog. And there's a difference. Um, I, I will tell you, sorry, my daughter needs water in her water bottle right now. You're all good. <laughs> uh, um, I will tell you right now that what I have seen more of in recent years with our retrievers is I, in my opinion, am seeing a lot more sensitive dogs. 
Okay. I'm seeing dogs that when I, when I put any form of pressure, now when I say pressure, I'm not talking about physically beating a dog. Right. I'm not talking about anything heavy. I am talking a no or pulling up on the collar, sit, you know, when I'm right. in formal obedience. And I see a dog pin its ears back and sit and really sulk. And you think to yourself, in the 80s, this dog would have been in trouble. You know, this dog would have been getting a lot of force on sit. This dog would have been getting a lot of pressure. And what happens with a certain type of person, not all, that dog starts cowering and acting confused and kind of slinking around with the tail tucked and the ears pinned back. And now a guy is getting frustrated with that dog, which mm -hmm. kind of manifests into a more hostile situation, if you will. Again, dramatic term, but uh, now this dog is pretty much in survival mode instead of trying to retain and learn information. And now what are we doing? And, and guess what happens the next time you throw the lead and collar or the lead and, and yeah, lead and collar on that dog, that dog's going, well, this sucked last time. This is going right. to suck this time. That's why what we talked about in that first episode, episode 85, I think you said, yep. Uh, you know, that first episode, what we talked about is so important. I'm teaching that dog that getting out and working with me is a good thing. Right. I'm and teaching that dog to have a training attitude, you know, and no one thinks about it like that, but. I promise you, if you think back on all your dogs that you've had or your friends' dogs and all of our listeners who've had, you know, this is the state of Wisconsin, man. You've got grouse woods, you've got upland preserves, and you've got world-class world waterfowl. So we've all had different types of dogs in this state, and we know different dogs in our, in our lives and experiences where if somebody would have thought about this, think about how many more dogs would have reached such a higher level of performance right. with with just giving them some consideration to their exposure, you know, along the way of all of this training and hunting included. And you were, and when you were bringing that up and made me stop and pause, cause it's okay to, if I'm working on, if I'm working on some sort of basic comedians command, or even my more advanced command <clears> and my dog just is not getting it that day. It's okay. If the dog doesn't get it that day, like it's, a, it's, it's not, a, it's a, it's a marathon. We are not sprinting here. This is a lifelong marathon. And if my dog's not feeling it that day for some reason, I'm not, maybe I don't know what's going on. Maybe she woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Maybe she's just not understanding the way I'm teaching her today, right? Maybe I'm slightly off today and don't even realize it. Maybe I have well, a bad yeah. attitude. It's okay for to walk sure, away. For sure. It's okay yeah, to I'll, walk I'll away. Say, just throw some bumpers, have some fun, change it yeah, up, throw a tennis ball. Forget have some fun and get out of it. Yep. Right. Get out of it. Find a way out. I, 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 I don't, I wish I could give credit to the person that said this because it's so true. Um, always have a way out. And if that's having the bumper in the back pocket and you hit a stalemate at the end of the day, throw a fun toss and, and go back to the couch and watch football for a little bit and just re reset. I even, I would even argue, and this is something I'm trying to learn now. Um, they say, as you get older, you get wiser. We'll see <laughs> if I'm in a bad mood, I don't even train. Sure. And you know what? A day off or not a day off, but uh, it is, I might just go, flip a few kennel latches and take them out back for a, for a run and pet them and love on them. And we did nothing, no training at all, because if I'm irritated from work or, you know, if I got other things going on, you know, I mean, holiday time is busy for everybody. It's like, if you can't go into it with that patient, you know, teacher mindset, you know, that coaching mindset of I'm going to build this dog one step at a time, 
don't even do it. And then I would, I would, on a secondary level, I would say what you said, the timeline and the expectations, everyone needs to pump the brakes. Right. If, if your dog is supposed to progress every day, then you should be able to train a dog in about 60 days and be done forever. And that is not the case. I think what we all need to understand is that it's normal to go a few days, a week, two weeks, sometimes, depending where you're at in training, of course. Sure. With, with minimal to no progress. And it doesn't mean that you're, it doesn't even mean you're struggling. You're just, you're in the midst of learning the dog. I mean, it's right. like, no, but I mean, we're talking to a lot of amateur trainers here. So even they're learning, like you're both learning at this point, to be honest. Yeah. You're never going to stop. I'm going to tell you right now, you know, I don't know how many dogs I've had my hands on as a trainer. I don't know. It's, it's a lot more than your average guy, but it's a lot sure. less than your world-class pros. So I'm somewhere in the middle, I guess, probably closer to the average guy, but nonetheless, um, I still haven't figured it out, you know? Right. And every single dog throws me for a loop somewhere. And that's what I have learned to enjoy about it. I didn't enjoy it 10 years ago. It, it was a, it was a, it annoyed me. Sure. And I think I, so I understand whatever, anybody that's listening to this, who's a, a, a guy like me, you know, a family guy, I got a job just like you, you know, I love to hunt and I absolutely love to work dogs. But when I hit a rough spot, I come in the house angry like you do. It's, it's the discipline part where you say, okay, I'm frustrated. We're going to get out of this session. I'm going to pet the dog on the head and put it away or bring it in the house with me, whatever. And now I got to go back to the drawing board and figure this out. You know, b- start blaming yourself more is what I would say. My dog's Agreed. not getting it. Why? You know, and don't, don't have an ego because, I mean, if you're going to train dogs and have an ego, you're already failing. You know, I can tell you that right now. I've learned that the hard way so many times. Uh, and that's just it. So, like, where, how am I failing to communicate with my yep. dog? So it's not yep. understanding what I'm asking of it. Because from the beginning, we've set the behaviors and expectation that this dog wants to be with us. It wants to please us because it gets a reward when it does. Yeah. So, so that didn't. So change. don't negate that. Don't negate that. Don't get frustrated and start making it a negative thing because that that polar opposite yin and yang thing really conflicts these dogs. They're very. You know, they're very like cause and effect thinkers. They're linear thinkers. It's, it's, it's like, if this happens, that is the result. That's how they get conditioned. So if every time you take them out, it's like sometimes it's positive, sometimes you lose your mind, you're, you're, you're hurting that working attitude. And again, do as I say, not as I do, because I am not right. perfect at this. You know, <laughs> I'm human just like everybody. But, but these dogs learn so much more when they're in a relaxed, focused state of mind, which brings me back to episode 85, getting on a place board for a treat, man, following me sure. outside to go potty and getting, getting rewarded. Every time I follow my family or my handler somewhere and I do one of these things, this is great, you know? And it's really no different when there's six months, a year, and you're going into formal training. But my challenge for everybody, okay, I mean, I'll give you a, you have pointers. So let's talk pointers because it's, it, I think our conversation is better when we're both really familiar with the stage of training. Huh, that's funny. Uh, cause I'm far more re- familiar with retrievers. Cause I did well, that. Then, then fine. Then fine. <laughs> then let's do that. Let's do that. Well then, you know what? I'm learning pointers. So let's talk. Let's, pointers go, let's anyway. go pointers. Let's go pointers. Let's just talk about the belly collar. Like I brought up earlier. Yep. 
I actually, I actually have this discussion with the local pro who has national champion, you know, shooting dogs and, and walking trial dogs. And he could walk me into the ground. The guy has so many miles and field trials and competitive dogs. I have no business arguing with him, but my logic, I want to explain it. I don't think you should ever throw a belly collar on a dog and start putting pressure on their belly to stop and stand still until you can get them to do it on lead. And my logic is simple. On lead, I have a tool that I can actually stop you. Right. When I say, whoa. And yeah, they may move. They're going to move. I guarantee it when you start. Anything I can do to stop you physically and reward you for it and tell you that's what I want. If I can get you to do that. Now, whether it's I use what's called a suitcase handle. It's a lead that wraps around their belly and attaches to their neck collar. So it's literally a handle. And so when I pull up, they get a little pressure on their neck a little bit. But I primarily want the tension to be on their flank. My logic is that if in that situation they can get familiar with stopping on the woe command and start getting introduced to some sort of pressure on their flank next to me, just like on lead obedience and everything else, a familiar place for them. When I introduce the collar, because they've been introduced to the collar on here, on the neck collar, you know, right. formal obedience, whatever your program is, our short hair still learn to sit and do all of that, but I, I balance it with bird work and, you know, sure. obedience work. Um, if they can do it, I, I say manual. And what I mean is you're holding a lead and you're putting pressure on their flank, but it's you're in control. It's not a control thing. It's a physical, they, they can learn quicker when they feel a physical correction, but it's not intense. It's relatively minimal in terms of actual tension or pressure, but they're being rewarded by letting go and the tension releases and you're standing right. still and you just did a woe and good boy, good girl. Then when I bring the collar in, it's no different than when I brought the collar in on their formal obedience on their neck. And it's not always that smooth, but to me, I'm giving them every step of the way to comprehend what's being taught. Right. This particular pro will throw a belly collar on a dog and go out and do it. And, and I can't argue with him. His dogs are, I mean, when you go watch him, you'd be like, yeah, I can't criticize his dogs. They run like a right. million dollars. But he also has the luxury of doing it all day full time and he's got 40 years experience and he's just better than me and you know it works for him but for me i don't want to risk that that gap in information you know that point that we just talked about where the dog's clearly confused and now i'm perplexed going where did i go wrong right so this is the the statement of the night with our with our second conversation is no matter where you're at in training break it down so finite that there's no holes. And if it takes a little longer, it's going to be done that much better. Now, if your dog's right. bored stiff, okay, find a way to make it fun. I mean, give them a bird, throw a bumper, do whatever you got to do. But we either speed up too fast in training or we end up in the field on game day before they're actually ready. And then we create all these other problems. And now we've got a mess. So, I think you and I can agree. I mean, if, if you can pay attention on this level and then maintain that from that early puppy stage that we talked about previously to that transition stage where we're now starting to treat you like a big dog a little bit, and we're going to start up in the ante in terms of what we expect, the compliance right. we want to see. And ultimately, when you get in the field, now we got to put it together. But And we'll talk about this at some point, I'm sure. 
Now we got to understand the first few hunts or the first season or two, it's not going to look like the finished product you have in your head probably. And you need to wrap your mind around that. I mean, forget about what you see in movies, like not even movies, like hunting movies, hunting videos, YouTube. If you've been around your buddy's dog who was professionally trained, that's six years old Mm -hmm. and you were, and you hunted with them, your dog's not going to be that on its first hunt. It's first season. Like that's not, (laughs) if if it is, I'll buy it. Right. Like you need realistic expectations for your dog. And that first hunt is just as much for train, not even just as much. I'm going to take that back. That first hunt is training for the dog and not hunting for you. In my, if you want to set a good foundation moving forward for every hunt, that first hunt is exposure for the dog to hunting. It's the first time that we're going to pick on a duck dog right now. Cause it's the first time in the blind. It may be not in the blind, but it's the first time in the. It shouldn't be the first time in the blind. Put it that way. It shouldn't be the first. No, time but in it's the its blind. first game. It's its first game first, day where you're there right. to kill ducks, right? Exactly. So that dog's yeah. been steady in the <laughs> most way you can replicate it. It's retrieved fine, no problems before, and now you get out there, you shoot that first bird, but the dog breaks right away, and now the dog's confused by the decoys because everything's changed. The atmosphere is ten times, twenty times, a hundred times more exciting, and the training's gone. It's out the window because the dog's just jacked up, and it's like I don't know what to do. So we're out in the water. Yeah. Like, yeah. You got to take that step back. And for me, for my first hunt with a dog, I'm finding a buddy. I'm finding someone, and I'm gonna. I'll I'll leave my gun in the case, just so yeah. I can work work my dog. And if that means that dog breaks that first time. Well, maybe the second time I'm going to put it back on a leash. So I have that little more control that way. They're like, I can like go back to sit and go back to the collar and the leash. Now, yeah, we're a dog's collar conditioned by this point. Most likely, I don't want to presume it is depending on the age of the dog, but say that, I mean, I'm going to go back to the leash, something like you said, you can control and you can apply that little bit of pressure. So it knows like it can release that pressure. Like it knows that reward. I am not above tethering a dog in the duck blind with a you know a 12 inch or a 14 inch you know whatever you want to call it a tab or a a short Mm -hmm. lead where they're clipped to the blind they can't go anywhere at midway usa we know the ar-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern american history known for its modularity and widespread use it's often considered essential to any gun collection the essential things you need to run an ar-15 are usually always in stock during shortages things like magazines and 5.56 ammo Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on, and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm not above it. And I, you know, there's old, old traditional duck hunters. You know, if your dog's not steady, don't come in my blind. Well, I agree, but we've got to give that dog a chance to go to school. Right. And of course, in training, you're going to do your best, but let's be honest. What you just said is, is so true that you get, you know, here where I'm at, you're going to see more mallards than anything. Uh, or we shot an 11 man limit of Canada's, uh, in December in 32 minutes. Now, I mean, think about what a dog experiences in a hunt like that. Right. You know, 
that hundreds is, of rounds. Like that's not, not, chaos. Right. And so now, first of all, what I love what you said about I'm not hunting, I'm training. I mean, I would I would go as far, Brad, and I, again, I I'm because of all the mistakes I've made, I am so overly cautious. I'm over the top. I'll admit it, but I don't care. I don't care because what's a couple more hunts without a gun if it right. gets done right? If, you're, if your dog's good, you'll hunt more. You'll make an excuse to take that trip or go on that extra hunt because you've got that dog. Right. But if, exactly. you, if you rush that dog and ruin that dog, now you're not going to hunt as much. So if you sacrifice the gun a few more times and pay attention because these dogs are smart, timely corrections, situational awareness which to your point, there is no simulation. No, not to a, of, even upland hunting. There isn't. I mean, there, well, you upland's not. even, upland's <laughs> even another animal too. And I, I, I'll share my North Dakota story about that. Cause I, I set a dog up for a tough thing. And, um, but I tell people your first three hunts, I mean, waterfowl wise, if, if you're hunting by yourself, it's different. But if you've got friends, like you said, your first three hunts, if you're bringing your gun, great, but but keep it in the case and and focus on that dog. Right. Make sure that dog can see. Make sure that that dog is is sitting and you have a high obedience standard. Make sure that you only are letting that dog pick up ducks where they're doing it right. Because sometimes the most powerful training uh, response is to not let them pick up that bird. Right. You know, and, and what I mean by that is if that dog breaks or if that dog is pumping its feet, not sitting and, you know, you're going to see some of that Howling. with a young dog. Like, so, right, yeah, just... exactly. Oh, man, vocals a whole nother thing. I, <laughs> if someone knows how to fit. <laughs> Mike Lardy, the, the Michael Jordan of retriever training, admitted that's hard to fix. So I'm not ashamed to say it. If someone knows what works on that, please let me know because we've had some <laughs> success, but we've never truly fixed it. Sure. Um, and, and so if, if that dog is doing those things and you kill a bird for them and give it to them, you just told them, good job. Right. Right. And you're, you have pointing dogs. It's no different in that world. If that dog does not hold to the flush, at least there's a lot of trainers that won't shoot that bird because why would you reinforce and reward? I don't non-compliance you know you're not doing what i taught you now there are puppies that don't know right. and so therefore what you said your expectations are everything if i'm out there with a five-month-old german short hair i might kill the bird for that dog because it needs drive it needs to get some retrieves right. it needs to love birds but that's situational awareness and are we working on whoa maybe we're, well, we're probably at, 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 at we're five months no, at five I'm months, I'm not. No, at right. five months, I'm letting you do whatever the hell you want, basically, as long as you love birds and I'm seeing the fire getting lit. You know, I mean, we can always install the brakes with a more mature right. and dog, right? But a dog that's been in a field and loves birds is going to be a lot easier to train. Agreed. Now, you know, if I've been through woe and I have confidence that dog knows what woe is and it's breaking now out there, I'm probably like, I'm not going to shoot that bird. I'm not going to reward that behavior. If anything, I would hope not. I'm going to call that dog back to heal, and we're going to reset, and then I'm going to resend the dog. That's what I do. Like, I 100%. won't shoot that bird. If it starts to chase, I will recall her, 
I will put her at heel and sit her. I will slow her down. And then I will send her again. Sure. And what I like about that is that's a great manual. I use the term manual because we're just going back to basics. The stuff you right. taught that dog as a youngster. You're using a manual non, it's not really confrontational. It's certainly not heavy pressure, but you took the ultimate reward away. And you got the upper hand in a way where you didn't kill their drive. You didn't kill their confidence. You didn't smother them in confusion. Right. You know, you addressed a fault. You regained control. All the while, all they want to do is go back out and try it again. Right. Exactly. And, and, and that's, I mean, in a nutshell, that is where training has gone today. We have really started to prioritize keeping a dog happy and willing throughout all forms of training. And it never was that way when I learned. It was a lot of correction and turning off pressure when I did something correctly. And there's only a certain percentage of dogs that are going to maintain style and competence through all of that. Sure. And, you know, that to me is the ultimate problem with all of us being, you know, quote unquote, amateurs or part-timers or do-it-yourselfers is we're cramming a lot of training into minimal time. Right. And so it, it's very natural for us to rush and have expectations that are way too lofty. And I promise you, if all of us, I mean, I'm doing it now with my pointing dogs. Like I said, admittedly, I'm a 20-year retriever guy. I'm new to pointing dogs. I've been around them for a long time. But to say I understand their training and development, I'm a student right now. So I go up and work with a pro. And every time I go, they teach me something new. And they tell me it's almost the same thing. Slow down. Back up. And what's funny is if you're willing to take two steps back, Pretty soon you're taking seven steps forward because these dogs, they, they got it. They got it. Sure. If your genetics are there and you're just doing the right things, you could go through two weeks of training at any stage and feel like, man, I have not gained any ground. This dog is not sitting on a whistle. This dog is breaking on every bird at points. This dog is breaking on every mark I throw it. You know, take, pick your poison, whatever problem right. you want to bring up as an example. And after two weeks of just consistently, what did you just say? You know, your dog creeps in on a bird. It didn't, whoa. Bring it back to a heel. Regain some focus. Let them know, uh-uh, you're not getting that bird. Don't do that. Right. And ultimately, that's all you're saying to the dog. After two weeks of that, when you're like, are you ever going to understand this? The next three points are just almost steady to shot, if you will. I mean, they just all of a sudden flip the teeter-totter the other way, and you're like, oh, you're steadier than I thought you'd be. Right, because exactly. It's, it's like, okay, I got it. And you go, wow, that didn't just happen with one correction. It took a compound list of corrections, but it was consistent. And the dog finally connected the dots. I, I have two small kids. I don't think it's any different. I mean, they don't communicate at a super high level at three and five years old. Yes, they understand what I'm saying to a degree. Right. But there's no better teacher than experience. Well, experience needs to accumulate you got to give that dog 10 15 bird contacts especially wild birds and see you know are, is all my yard training on the woe command starting to translate because the first right. five to ten birds are probably i mean for lack of a better term they're probably a shit show oh for sure <laughs> and they and, and they should be they should be right. but you got under you know you know as well as i do you get out on that hunting trip and you got all this money invested in this dog and the professional training and just your excitement's all high 
and your dog breaks on the first four dogs at points. And, and man, I was like, what in the hell is going on? I was mad. And I come back home from my trip to Kansas and I'm like, my English pointer, who's a fantastic dog, didn't point a single covey, a quail. I mean, she was bumping in there and busting birds. And he goes, every time she busted them, though, she made the scent cone from further away, didn't she? Like she'd break down and acknowledge the scent. She was learning that pressure zone. She was learning, you know, okay, the first time I'm just going to chase. Right. The second, the second time I'm going to slow down a little bit, 20 yards here because I smell it, but I'm just not sure what it is. Then we went to, then we went the second time and, you know, she's, she's pointing. She's pointing them from 35 yards out. Now it's a strong crosswind. I'm not trying to give her nose more credit than it deserves. She was sensing them. <laughs> sure. But, sure. but what, what I'm saying is the brain. Right. It, it, it acknowledged what the body was telling. It. You know what I mean? It's like, you can't teach that, Brad. You have to give them that exposure. So you can train until you're blue in the face. But if that retriever hasn't been in a duck blind 25 times, they're inexperienced. Agreed. Or, or that upland dog. I mean, I'm a firm believer wild birds make bird dogs. Like if you're going to hunt wild birds, the more contact with wild birds makes your bird dog. I mean, grouse are hard. Grouse are a really oh, hard And bird, you can't even dog. train for grouse. That's a whole no. different thing. No, that's experience. That is 100% yeah. experience in the woods is what it is. Because grouse are finicky. They're hard. Like a good grouse dog is a pretty amazing. Now, they might not be a good dog on pheasants or other things. Yeah, but, but I, think, gr- I think you'd find that they are. And that's what I'm trying. That's a, I'm so glad you said that. And I'll, I'll let you finish your point. But I actually think that's the root of this whole discussion. It's not even really about training. It's about being willing to give that dog the field time, even after all the training to make the mistakes and get the experience and you have to manage it. I mean, you can't let it go out the window. Right. But you, you just have to understand that the first time you grouse hunt, you'd be lucky if your dog even like makes sense. Makes sense. I mean, it's going to bump birds. I mean, most, most of the time at the first time of every, every season, my dog bumps its first couple of birds. I mean, how granted, like, even like, I mean, does she remember probably, but she remembers hunting late season, no cover, good scenting conditions and now all of a sudden we're early season super thick green terrible terrible scenting conditions because all they smell is grass and leaves yeah they got to remember like oh i gotta slow down like you can see it click but every year and like you take a young dog now that's never even been in these conditions and expect like you're training on of on fields like launchers in the alfalfa field or whatever you've been doing like winter wheat if you've been running winter wheat fields with whatever you've been doing it's not wild birds. Wild no, birds' first job in life is to survive. Dogs yeah. are a predator. Like they have skills in brain from day one on how to evade this dog. And now you have a puppy who's never done this before that you've been training. Maybe you're through woe, maybe, right? And you're out there and like it just runs the bird over and then poof, gone. Well, what happened? Yeah. Why and and then I'd be woe? standing, I'd be mad. I'd be standing right? there mad at my dog and, and, you start thinking about, it. I mean, that puppy that's never hunted grouse before is no match for a grouse. He survives coyotes, fox, whatever, right? Who who are actually hunting him to kill him? You know that dog's hunting so you can shoot it. I mean, right? <laughs> it's it's just not the same threat. I mean, I don't know if you played instruments growing up as a kid or were in, in, into music, but I kind of equate it to you know I would be in music class and I'd be learning little keyboard exercises, but then if you put me on stage with sheet music and asked me to play an all-out song, 
I would just, I would tank. Right. And, and that's ultimately kind of what training to field is, you know, I mean, yeah, you're, you're isolating certain variables of a hunt and you're training in it, but there's just no, I mean, wild birds make a bird dog is the truest statement ever made in, in sporting dogs. And it's hard to, to do. It's hard to give it to them. We don't, we, none of us are blessed with plentiful wild birds really right. in Wisconsin, unless you're talking grouse ultimately. And then if you're a waterfowl hunter, you can kill a ton of birds. But if you're a pheasant quail guy, this state is not your state. I mean, not wild. Right. So, you know, Agreed. And, and that, that poses a problem because now we're talking about how do we, how do we take our training to another level? How do we connect the dots, uh, firm up our training, raise the standard. And then once we've got a dog that let's just use the word steady, whether we're talking a retriever to the, to shooting or, or a pointing dog that will let, you know, steady to wing and shot or fall or whatever your, your goals are, or a, a flusher that sits to flush and gets released on their name. All these right. things that are steadiness in air quotes, you still have to give that dog. I mean, if you talk to the best breeders and trainers in the country, they're going to tell you your whole first season's probably going to be a mess. And, and, and none of us go into the first season going, yep, this next three months is going to be a lot of corrections and a lot of focus on the dog. A lot of guys are going out there to, to kill birds and expect their dog to be the ultimate, you know, assistant. It, right. If it happens, good for you. You're lucky. But it's probably not going to happen. And what I've really been trying to, like, for new people, for friends that have just got dogs and things like this and people that have reached out, what I've really been trying to tell a lot of people is you're that first season is focus on training and don't think of it as sacrificing a season. You're not sacrificing anything. Your dog is a 10 to 12 year investment to you and yeah. focusing on that first season to set your dog up for success for the next 10 is where it's at. Like you're uh, not pretty giving good up return on season. investment. If you ask me, right. yeah, it's not a sacrifice. It's an investment. Right. And, and that's, that's so true. You know, the, the the nice part about Upland is at least with pen raised birds, with training ground, you know, you can definitely, I would argue you can simulate enough to build the drive. You know, if you got a dog that'll get out of heady a quarter, you know, I, I do believe things just kind of, they, they take shape. Right. You know, they really do. Um, the waterfowl thing, again, I, I'm a big fan of break things down. You know, if you really think about it, there is a difference between you and me in a blind with one dog and I say, okay, Brad, kill this single. I'm going to focus on the dog. But on that 11 man goose hunt that I went on 11, 12 gauges barking, you know, right. and, and not to mention you had instances where that flock would work and circle this field. I mean, it felt like 15 minutes. It probably was three or sure, two, sure. <laughs> but think about all the calls, the flagging, Right. The mojos, you know, that dog is looking up and seeing birds, looking into the blind, seeing people call in and flag in and looking out and seeing mojos spinning. And then you got a guy going, kill him. And 11 guns start going up after you stand. All of that movement, all of that instant noise and that just boom, 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 boom. That dog has every reason to be looking and bouncing. And I mean, if you could sit there and say, sit, while all that's going on, sit, even a nick on the collar, if all that training is done properly, mm -hmm. sit, nick. And that dog goes, oh, okay, okay. 
and then birds start falling and you just sit, sit, pet them on the head, sit. Right. It sounds insane. Cause it, like when the, when the dogs finish, you're not even remembering they're there. They're so steady. You know what I mean? You're working towards that goal, but that dog just sat, calmed down, saw birds fall. And because it was compliant, you send them. And now they get right. to make three, four, five retrieves. And they're like, this you just awesome. literally, yeah, you rewarded everything you want for the next 10 years versus right. letting them break because, oh, he's, kill, he's getting the birds. I don't care. I'm here to stack birds. Well, now that dog just learned every time I'm going to do this. But then the next time you're going to burn them for breaking. You're going to burn them right. on the collar. And now this and dog's what, like, holy shit, I'm in trouble if I stay. I'm in trouble if I go. What do I do? And what you said, like, that 11-man hunt is not the right hunt for a young dog. Not, not the no, right yeah, hunt don't even, do not dog. even bother. No, don't like bring, you're setting if you your have dog a young dog, failure. don't ever do that. I mean, absolutely. I should have, I should have specified that. I mean, we, we but hunted a 10 year old, you know, I think we already had in this conversation, but it just so drives back to where I want to continue. This is to that first few hunts. I know everyone gets excited. You spent all this time training your dog. Oh, I'm going to get my five buddies together. We're going to go shoot ducks. I'm going to show off my dog. That's something it's never experienced before. Cause I'm willing to bet you've never trained with those four buddies. All of you shooting guns off. With somebody throwing that bumper, you never did that. That dog's not used to four guns in a blind. No, it's not used no. to all those people and that. Like, slow it down, set that dog up for success, and grab your best bud out of that group and say, "Hey, this is for the dog." I did some, or if you don't have anybody, it's like I know, like at one point in my life after my divorce, I like didn't have anybody to hunt with at a point in my life. But mm -hmm. you know, like with social media now and everything else, if you went on social media. There's and you can recognize who like like the legitimate people are. You can normally weed through a lot of the crap. And if you're like, hey, I've got a young dog, can someone come out? I've scouted. Bring your gun. Like I'm willing to bet. Like you reach out to like you reach out and you're in my area. I'd give you a hand. I'm willing to bet there's other people yeah. in a lot of areas. Like because you're approaching this from a different. You're not like, hey, where can I take my dog to hunt? You're not asking people for their spots, which is a huge like you're going to turn everybody off. But if you're like, hey. I got a pretty decent spot. We should see ducks. I need someone in here so I can watch my, so I can like work with my dog. You're going to get someone who's old, like got that mentality of us. Who's like, yeah, hell yeah. For the dog. I'll do that for you. Like, yeah. I mean, dude, most of these people in this sport are more about the dog than they are anything. Right. I mean, I'm one of them without the dog. I could not care less about a lot of these sports and, and, I think what you said is key, but I think there's other ways to other things to add. I mean, number one, hunt and train with dog people. Right. You know, I have a lot of friends who really don't need a dog. They field goose hunt. They can send two guys out and go pick up five geese and get back in there and, and do their thing. I totally respect that. It's just that that's not what I enjoy. If I'm getting up at four in the morning, I want to watch a dog do it. Now, I will also admit, you start shooting 10 geese out of a, out of a flock, it takes a while for one dog to go pick them up. You know I mean? There's, sure. there's a reason to go pick them up all in one and get done. So from a practicality and function standpoint, I, I will concede there are times maybe it doesn't matter. And here where I live, there's a lot of field hunting, you know, uh, but killing them on a marsh, killing them on the water. This is where retrievers or your versatile breeds shine. Right. This is where they are absolutely an essential tool. But more importantly, what you said, fellow dog people understand the importance of those first few hunts where, you guys, we're not here for the trophy kills and the, the stack them up pictures and hero shots 
of we shot a 10-man limit. This is about one good retrieve for this pup or right. one positive experience. And those are the people that are going to give you, you know, that support plus your breed clubs and everything else. Or the other end of the spectrum is your non-dog buddies who would love a good dog because they're tired of going out and retrieving their own birds. <laughs> right. Right. You know, I mean, man, being the dog guy got me invited on a lot of great hunts over the years, <laughs> you know? And so that's what I'm saying. I mean, you, you know, be opportunistic, just like we are in other areas of life. Networking, like you said, social media. Yeah, it's there's pages for this. Right. You know, and so I, I totally agree. But I, I think if we were just a little more cognizant of taking our basic puppy training and now adding and, and just for the sake of being thorough, the training doesn't really change. It's just, OK, now I want when I tell you to sit, I really want you to stay sitting. Right. And then eventually I want you to do that when I'm three feet from you, six feet from you, 10 feet from you. I'm going to walk circles around you. And if they move, I put them right back, tell them to sit. I mean, it's not a super physical altercation. It's not a knuckle dragon thing. It's a just sit. And eventually I want to walk another dog around them. And then I want my kids around and I just want that dog to sit. It's that simple. Just sit there. I mean, the, these are things that a lot of us overlook because we're more intrigued with throwing our dog retrieves and throwing birds. The next thing you know, that dog learns every time you get me out, I get to pick up birds. Well, now you go hunting and you got to sit still for four hours and the dog's never had that in their life. So, right. you know, it, there's a there's always this this banter back and forth in the retriever world of those of us that run hunt tests or field trials. And, and those are two very different venues, might I add. But the point is, we you know, we train for those games. And then you have maybe just your what we'll call the meat dog crowd where they don't really care about the venues, but really they should because training for those would give you a nice, a better sure. duck dog, in my opinion, right. opinion. Uh, <laughs> and then you have then you have people who, you know, maybe they're like British lab enthusiasts and they run dogs differently than we do. More more of the, the old British methods and there's there's stereotypes that go with it and things that I don't even understand. But British labs are known for being real quiet, really well-mannered. And you, know, you look at all of it, and really there's gems in all three of those little fingers of the retriever world that I just told you. I mean, you'll see field trialers or hunt testers talk about British labs in a negative light. And yet I'll go look at some of the top British lab trainers in the country. They'll have 12 dogs out there sitting, and they'll load them on the trailer one by one by name. And the other 11 dogs don't move when he calls the other name. I, like there's like no collars there's nothing on the dog oh there's not a, nothing nothing it's right. pure control and taught and i think to myself you know i used to look at that stuff and go well that's a parlor trick that has no application and then i get a duck blind with dog that has no you know steadfast qualities to it at all it's bonkers it's vocal mm -hmm. it's bouncing around i think you know those dogs might actually be better in the blind than a field champion who's too hot to and that's a stereotype too field trial dogs are too wound up and too high strung bullshit bullshit right. There are field champions all over this country that spend 30 days in a duck blind and they're world-class duck dogs. And it's because their owners gave them the experience to develop those skills. It is not the same thing as a field trial. Duck hunting on a boat, on a blind, from a timber line, in a pit, you name it, it's still different than your competition venues. And you're the best duck dogs in the world have never run a hunt test and they might not even do well in it. But if you and I are going to go on a skiff on Lake Michigan and start killing ducks, that dog runs like a top. Right. And so 
there's no wrong or right answer, but the dogs that get to do it all and get a fair amount of time to learn it and a fair amount of experience to base it on, at five, six, seven years old, they are dogs of a lifetime. And that's the difference is everybody does the puppy stuff because everyone loves to see an eight-week-old puppy go out and pick up a pigeon and bring it back to you and yay, good boy. <laughs> but then fast forward two years and it's like the dog never got any better. Right. Because we just went hunting and like, you know, you throw enough against the wall and hope it sticks. And that's just it. Like you said, we just go hunting. Well, hunting, like hunting is training. Like if you allow your dog to break while hunting and then try to think you're going to fix it at your house in your yard, you're never gonna. It's not even the same situation. It's not even the same scenario. You can't expect to enforce bad behaviors in the duck blind or out like running the dog in the woods and then come back to your house and be like, oh, I'll correct steadiness here. You're never going to replicate it ever. No, you, no. I mean, you can't. So you're right. You need to do all your training. And then when you go hunting, you need to go, okay, now I can really train. Right. Now I get to take everything I worked on and I get to put it into a real world scenario. And, and you said it best. What is, what is one season when you get 10 more the right way? Right. You know, it and doesn't even take the whole season. No, it probably, probably not. Doesn't. Well, it depends how many hunts you do. Right. Agreed. You know, I mean, it, a lot of us, I, I'll be honest. I, I talk like I'm this big experienced hunter, but since I've had kids, man, I'm lucky if I get out a few times a year, I train dogs a ton. Sure. But they're not on a boat. You know, I have master hunters in my kennel that if you ran them in training, you'd be like, Ryan, it's a damn nice dog. And I would say, I, I agree. She's never duck hunted in her life. She's three years old, never been in a duck blind. My, my oldest is five, my oldest daughter. My second youngest daughter is three. I've hardly duck hunted since they were born. My wife works on Saturdays, you know, so. And then the upland season hits and I take my dad on Sundays to the upland or to the, to the gun club. So sure. honestly, all things considered, I'd rather go hunting with my dad and chase some pheasants. You know, it's good family time. It's something we right. like to do. So I sacrifice some of the waterfowl hunting right now to do more of the upland. And, and like I said, I've got a lot of interest in the pointing stuff right now. I'm learning a new thing and I'm just, I'm into it. Um, and that's why I wanted to tell you, you know, I was talking to an, a very successful all-age pointer guy. He's out of Illinois, but he's got a plantation in Georgia as well. I don't know if I'm allowed to say names or I don't know what names. the price. So it, it, I'm not sponsored. Would... This show is not sponsored or promoted okay. by any kennel club or breeder. They were, <laughs> they were selling, they were selling some started dogs out of their breeding program and it's the Derrick family and they own a ton of successful pointing dogs in the all age level. I mean, it's a prestigious breeding program. There's just no way, no two ways about sure. it. And I was talking to uh, the son, the father who started it all and his son, and he was just such a nice guy, had a lot of time for me, was being really polite and patient with me. And I'm asking questions and he's talking about some of their staple dogs, you know, over the last however many decades. And these are dogs that run all age pointing field trials where in some situations they're 800 yards away. And when you turn, when you turn right to go that way on your horse, the dog turns with you. They see you from that far away. They go with you. They're hunting for you still. And he goes, but I take that same dog in the grouse woods and he's at 35 yards and he's just a statue. And I take him to hunt pheasants and he's 150 yards away. But when he gets on point, he will not move. He's steady through it all. And he goes, but that dog has hunted his whole life in multiple different situations, multiple different types of birds. And so that's an extreme example. But I think that's exactly what you and I have been talking about this whole conversation 
at the end of the day, that dog was given an opportunity to do everything and not just once a year for 10 years, you know, this dog was right. hunted. And, and and that's one of the demises of myself is, you know, I have a kennel full of dogs that I couldn't possibly give that experience to. Sure. So some of, some of them really are here because they're hunt test dogs and I love to run them and I love to train and they're pets and they have great genetics and they contribute to a breeding program so that other people can have great dogs. Right. That's right. the reality of it. And I'm sorry for people that disagree. I wish I could hunt. I mean, I wish I was, you know, so financially uh, independent <laughs> that I could just hunt every day, you know? Um, so I'm, I'm hoping to get that financial that. independence tonight with the mega millions. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, and, and, and Hey, some people, you know, that's their life. They hunt on their property every day or they, you know, they right. have that life, that ability somehow, some way I don't. Uh, but I'm you know, pretty fortunate. Here, I'm pretty fortunate. We don't have kids. I'm have a, I'm able to work remote. I mean, I would say at almost two and a half, if not three weeks of October, I was up North chasing grouse. Now, well, you I know, man, your the, dog gets a lot of experience then that a lot of people don't. And you're at an advantage, no doubt, you know, for sure. And I'm not out there all day. I'm not burning up a ton of vacation, but if I can work remote and hunt an hour after work every night, that's an hour more exposure and experience. And that's more contact with birds. Well, I mean, if you went Monday to Friday, it's five hours a week, 25 right. hours a month, you know, all of a sudden three seasons goes by and that dog's got, you know, how many hundreds of hours it, right. it adds up fast. I mean, Kobe Bryant used to say, I work out at 3 AM because over the course of my career, I have 8,000 hours more than the other guy. And that's why I win, you know, and it's sure you have to find that time, whether it's training or hunting. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I've glazed over things too generically or not. I mean, I, I don't know how technical we want to get, but the bottom line is you've got training to think about, and then you've got to think about your early hunting stages as a continuation of that training, which you said so well, you're still training and you got to apply everything. And then you got to make sure that you're fair about the fact that if you duck hunted twice last season, man, your dog's still training in season two, no doubt about it. Right. You know, and that's the problem is, you know, we all have lives and we're busy and not all of us have same situation. So, I mean, what is the reasonable amount of hunting exposure to where your expectations can be up here? I truly don't know, but I'll tell you what, it's a lot. You know, it's a lot that to be fair to that animal, it's a lot. But also, if you could be a little more cognizant of what to expect, why how can I set my dog up for the most success on this hunt? And you do that pretty soon. It becomes a habit of yours. And now 10 hunts later, your dog has done a lot of things right and gotten rewarded and gotten positive experiences. And, and guess what? Just like we said in the first episode, we're still conditioning behavior, right? It's right. the same thing. I mean, okay. So they're two years old and now we're making them sit before they retrieve a bird. I shoot, but at eight weeks they had to sit for their food. Well, guess what? It's just a continuation. It, it actually never ends is my point. You know, if a dog learns to do something, we add distance, we add distractions. Distance erodes control, distractions erode control. So first I need you to sit with no distractions and, and right next to me for a short amount of time. And we build to the point where I should be able to make you sit on a whistle a hundred yards away and you're going to wait for direction. You're not going right. anywhere. Right. And Obviously, that's a process, but I, I think everybody does what you said. They do some early work. We get them introduced to birds, dead and alive. We get the gun intro done, and now we're flushing birds and killing birds, and basically it's time to go hunting. 
okay. You know what? If you're just an upland hunter and that dog is is pretty good at it from that standpoint, you're you're probably okay. You know, because more right. hunting is more experience. If that's right. all you're gonna do, um, you know, depending on what your expectations of the obedience and the steadiness and what level you're going to, just a flushing type of lab that only pheasant hunts and that's it. Okay. Yeah, and I there's nothing wrong with that. If that's what if oh, that's no. if that's if that's you, I mean, and be realistic with how you hunt and how much you're gonna hunt. Like be realistic. I mean, everybody's got these amazing hopes and aspirations. And I mean, even I do, like I'm blessed. I get to hunt quite a bit throughout the year, but even I'm like, man, I, I really feel like I missed a whole bunch of October. Like I should have been off like for two weeks straight. Like I even set unrealistic hunting X. Like I hunted a lot last year. Like I need to hunt more somehow, like be realistic about it. And if you, if that's what, if you enjoy chasing your lab through the tall grass, hunting pheasants, and you just need a dog that's got good obedience and stays within range, that's a completely different level of training than some of these other things we're talking about. Oh, hundred percent. And you know what? <laughs> I'll tell you what, those dogs that are good at it are special, you know, dogs that can truly trail a running bird. And, and dogs that are relentless enough to go through that tall, thick stuff for hours on end. I mean, it's spectacular to watch. And dogs that can mark and cattails and, and you know, right. come up with the bird. Believe me, I mean, a good upland dog is very easy to kind of shrug off like, oh, that's the, that's the easiest thing to train. No, it is not. Um, but at the same token, if you do it right, I mean, it's, it's reasonable at seven, eight, nine months of age that you're hunting with that dog and sure they're not polished, but they're, they're functional. They're a serviceable oh, sure. gun dog for sure. I mean, you put um, that, you put that time in, you take those first few hunts, you make sure you really work on range and things like that. You, you shoot the gun, you make sure they don't go flying out of range, like all of that. You work on all that by hunt four or five, that dog might be like, where you have a buddy with you and you're like, man, your dog's amazing. And it did oh, take yeah. like, I mean, cause the expectations were realistic and like you have a dog with a lot of drive that you spent the time on and you focus those first few hunts on to make sure it stayed in range and you set it up for success. Sure. And then you're going to have your purists who are either high level retriever hunt testers or your spaniel crowd that field trials or hunt tests. And they believe a dog should sit to flush. And, you know, right. these are all things that who cares? I mean, whatever you want to do, do just be consistent, be fair to the dog and train accordingly. And I think everybody can do their thing. But, you know, I think the, the biggest problem here is really when you try to get into a dog that's going to be a versatile hunting dog and do everything. Because if you do all your duck dog training, let's just say duck dog in quotes, right? The dog right. that sits at heel, marks birds that fall, eventually learns how to handle and run blind retrieves. Now you take a pheasant hunting, it doesn't want to leave your side because everything's been super strong obedience and total control. Now you're frustrated because the dog won't leave your side and go out and find birds. Well, all of a sudden right. that, all of a sudden that meat dog upland dog sounds pretty good, doesn't it? <laughs> because it's, it's willing to go out and find those birds. So, you know, there's absolutely a middle ground here where, and, and this is our point of this whole conversation, you know, yeah, we want dogs that are steady in the duck blind with great obedience and good mannerisms and they're calm, cool, collected, and they don't get worked up. But then we want an upland dog that's a banshee. Right. And the insane dog got drive, don't quit. Exactly. Charge, but, but then charge, we got a duck charge. hunt and he's the opposite. And, right. and it, it's 100% doable. Everybody needs to know that. It is 100% doable, but it's not just training. It's experience on both sides of the coin enough to where the dog starts to separate those venues and understand what's expected of them. They are intelligent enough to do that. 
but they can't do it with two pheasant hunts and two duck hunts last year and then just go. I, I mean, it, it's not reasonable. So what'd you right. say? Expectations. Right. And so I, I wish I could write and the manual, okay. you know, and it's okay. If you had some, if that's, if you're only able to do two duck hunts and two pheasant hunts a year, that's okay. Like that's perfectly fine. Just have those realistic expectations for your dog. And if they just yeah. don't meet this mental image you have in your mind, just remember to tell yourself that it's a lack of experience. It's not their fault. It's not your fault. It's just what it is, what it is. I don't like that saying, but really it is what it is. And as long as everyone is safe and your dog is doing the best they can with the experience they've been given, don't take it out on your dog. Like, just be like, enjoy it. Enjoy that moment and know like what you have done is the best you possibly can do and enjoy mm -hmm. that experience to what you can and always try to better it. Like, don't, I'm not saying like, just give up on the dog. It is what it is, but no, but recognize what it is with the experience you've been able to give it. I mean, that's literally the whole point. I mean, you just, <laughs> you, you literally just said it perfectly and I, I can't even add anything because you, you nailed it. I mean, I am going to go back to North Dakota. I went last year for the first time. I want to go back next season. Think about it from my perspective. That's the only time my pointers are going to run the prairie on wild you know, sharp tails and hunts. So if I go next year for three days, they will have six different opportunities in their life to encounter those birds. How good could they really be? Right. You know, everything you, I mean, spot on what you just said. My expectation is by year five, they might go out there and do it right. Sure. And I'm, you know, I'm exaggerating because it probably won't be that long. But, you know, when you're only going for a few days at a time, I mean, five. And take those wins. Like next year you go out there and your one dog does it right one time out of 100. Take that Which win. Which is real. And that's that's 100% what could happen. And you're right. right. I'm going to be stoked about it. Right. You know, the first time I went to Kansas and my pointer was bumping quail coveys because she just had never done it. And I'm angry. I mean, it's it's. How good are you going to be at guitar after two lessons, after three lessons? Right. You know, and it's, it's literally the same thing, but for whatever reason, because we do it in the yard, you know, we, in the backyard, my dog stands at well perfectly or it's steady on every retrieve. I throw it. Well, okay. <laughs> but there's a big graduation to game day. Right. You know, so I, I just, I would encourage everybody to really break it down. And, you know, I think it's that Malcolm Gladwell who did all those, those, books on tape you know about what it takes to truly become a master of anything and it's like ten thousand hours you know to be a great professional athlete or a great ceo or a great salesman or a, a great builder or a carpenter ten thousand hours right right so i'm not saying your dog needs ten thousand hours i mean that's probably a lot of most of their lifespan I mean, I don't know what that comes out to seven, eight years of four, 40 hours a week, whatever that is. Well, well okay. 10, there's 8,760 8, hours in a year. And that's, and that's, like, that's a whole year. Right. That doesn't include sleeping, eating. That's breaks, my point. Anything. Right. I so mean, a few years of their life at a, I mean, if you go 40 hours a week times 52 weeks, whatever that is, you know, how many years until you get to 10,000 hours? I think there's 2000 and like 20 hours or something like that. And so let's, be, let's think about that then. So if you're going to South Dakota once a year to chase wild pheasants, the only plus side to wild pheasants is in a cattail slough. They typically hold in the cover. And if your dog a quarter, you're going to find them. Now, wild pheasants is still a different ballgame. Don't get me wrong. But those quail coveys and those prairie birds, I mean, man, you know, that's a different deal. 
Sure. That's a different deal. I mean, those animals here, you come in 200 yards away. So that 30 yard boot polish and dog is not going to be as effective in certain situations and terrain or whatever else. So my point is everybody needs to relax and understand that we're training our dogs extremely part-time. So to get to that master status, that elite status is going to take forever. (laughs) And you need to start smiling about it and embracing it and just looking forward to it because you're going to save yourself a lot of hassle and you're going to make your dog's journey a heck of a lot more enjoyable. I'd rather watch a happy, enthusiastic, stylish dog that screws up once in a while and is biddable enough to, to be corrected in a fair sense and get better in front of my eyes than a dog that's afraid to do something right. or has been conditioned to think they're always wrong. And, you know, dogs were bred to, to go fast and take pressure a long time ago. But as they've gotten smarter and as they've gotten better, as our methods have gotten more modern and more effective, you're getting dogs that are thinkers. Right. You know, they're, and they're, they're, dare I say it, they can be emotional, they can be sensitive, and it's a sign of progress, but it doesn't work with a short, fused, heavy-handed trainer. Right. And so, you know, you're right. you you got to be a lot more diplomatic in the way that you you approach, how does my dog see this? What's working? Why not? You know, that what we talked about, come in from a bad session and sit on the couch and blame yourself. And how do I undo this? And, and this is really good for me to say out loud because it's been a big thing that I've been working on for the last few years, you know, and I'll admit it. I mean, I have overreacted and I have been impatient and I'll tell you something. I've washed dogs out of my program way too early, way too early because I, I f- feel like I should see it at a year or at a year and a half. Sure. And in reality, I've got dogs that are three that are blossoming. And I, I'll admit, I'll admit it. Like I, like I did all the yard training in the world in my lab and I mean, I have friends that were my witness that it was not a proud moment. Like I lost my cool with my dog on a duck hunt because he wouldn't be steady, but I didn't set him up for success. And then when he was still super amped up, like my energy level and my frustration just made everything worse. And like, it was not a good situation. I'm not proud of how I acted. I had a very loving and kind dog that forgave me for being a complete asshole. I normally don't swear much on my soul show, but we're going to say that because that's how I was. I was like, I was not an effective trainer. And it was probably borderline abuse. Like, and like, it's not nothing I'm proud to admit, but I lost my cool and I didn't know how to walk away. Yeah, but good for you for admitting it because I think a lot of people that that will end up listening to us talk about this are going to find some comfort knowing that we're all capable right. of these mistakes. And I think that's it's like anything else in life. I mean, we, we all have faults and shortcomings, but let's be fair to that dog. I mean, at the end of the day, more people have these dogs in the house and as family members now than they did 20 years ago. They're not out back in a kennel as often anymore. So if you got to have a pet 365 days a year, it's important to now again. I'm not saying you can't be the authoritative figure and you can't have demands and the punishment fits the crime. I mean, my dogs can absolutely be corrected sometimes, sure. you know, with, with a little bit of assertion if it, if it's warranted, but I do that when I know that they know what I mean. Right. And so, you know, get to that point. And again, to get to that point, we're talking hours, hours, hours. We're talking experience. We're talking just a, a laundry list of, of factors that have to be checked off. So uh, if anybody's going to, you know, listen to this and start thinking about their, you know, we got spring right around the corner, I hope a couple months to go here and, you know, we're getting into training time and we're coming out of a season and we're going to start going into the off season. What's my plan? You know, break it down, keep them happy, keep it fair, make sure you're in a good mental state. If you're frustrated, 
have fun with the dog that day and train tomorrow. Right. Um, you know, less can be, I'm sitting here going, you need hours, hours, experience, experience. <laughs> and yet guess what? Less can be more. Agreed. You know, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a really funny thing to balance out. And it's what you said in the beginning. I think learn to read your dog is more important than understanding a training program, you know? Uh, but yeah, I mean, if, if you think I've left anything, you know, unturned or unexplained, you know, let me know. But, um, no, I think, I, I think really, all the, I think this episode hit exactly what I thought. Cause I wasn't looking to do an episode on how do you teach a dog sit? How do you teach a dog here? This is what, that's not what I wanted this episode to be. I wanted this episode to be in exactly what it is. How do we train mentally to prepare our dogs for success? And really mm -hmm. this episode really focused on us as trainers on how to be mentally prepared and mentally in the right place to make sure we can get these dogs and set them up for success with rewards and everything else. But at the end of the day, like really, I mean, we were training for the field, like mentally training ourselves for the field is what we were doing. Yeah. And I think, I think you got to bring the field to your training at some point too. You know, I mean, I'm a big fan of stripping it down and doing my basics, you know, even in the house, you know, it's cold, it's windy. I'll take a puppy right here in the house and do place board work or, you know, some simple obedience hallway retrieves with a canvas dummy or whatever. But you also, you know, like today was 45 degrees and sunny. It was crazy. So our trainer loaded up a bunch of puppies and took them up to the state park and went for a walk through the cover. Sure. And it's like those puppies are getting out there and she throws them tennis balls and bumpers. And heck, sometimes if we have some extra birds, we'll put some quail out. Right. And we, they watch us throw the quail down because I want them to just chase it. Sure. You sure. know, I mean, I don't really want them abruptly getting a flush in their face at 12 weeks old when they're not ready. I mean, I don't want negative right. experiences, which is kind of a good example of, you know, setting your dog up for success. But when they see us throw that little quail in the cover and they come to explore it and chase it. I mean, I just got a dog that started associating cover with finding birds and having fun. And what do you think they do the next walk? They're torpedoing into the thick stuff. And, right. you know, it, that's what makes a hunting dog too. I mean, they've proven that these puppies can start understanding functions of their role later in life by early socialization to those, those environments and those factors. Sure. You're not going to steady a nine week old puppy let him break on the retrieve, but he can learn how to retrieve and mark and go get something that he sees fall and learn to love birds and nurture that prey drive and learn to love working with you for a reward. Like you said, you know, dogs are very basic creatures. They, they, they want to eat. <laughs> they, they want to be, you know, like warm, dry, safe, you know, kind of thing. And they'll breed if they're given the opportunity. And beyond that, I mean, they love companionship. They love to be in their pack. That's really their core needs. I mean, that's it. So, and I really truly can... believe, and my, you might not agree, which is fine. Others, might, I really do believe they try to please you. Like they know their place in the pack. And I a hundred percent believe that dog truly is trying to please you as the owner and leader of that pack. I really believe it. I, I couldn't disagree with that because now they have to, you have to get there. Right. You know, if, if I go grab a two-year-old dog out of the pound right now, some of them might latch on right away and bond and some, you know, may be reluctant. You, that's earned. What you just said is earned. Agreed. And I, and I think that's something we have to tell ourselves because that fits right into the theme of getting your mind right, getting your expectations right, having respect for that animal, but also being firm and, and you know, hey, look, I mean, you are going to work for me and you are going to be compliant with my standard, but I'm also going to be your best friend in the world and I'm going to respect your ability to learn and give you the timeline that's fair 
And I promise, you know, I'm not going to put you in any positions where you have no idea what you're being corrected for, what you're being told. Think of every guy that on opening day goes to a preserve out here and throws an e-collar on his dog for the first time ever. Right. And he zaps, he flushes a bird, you miss. He goes to run across the road after the bird and he starts lighting them up. That happens every day during oh, for the sure. season so- somewhere. Oh, and now that do- now that dog thinks the pheasant did it. Now that dog thinks it's, you know, they don't know. Like the whole foundation of training is so that these negative associations don't happen. And so it's a it's your awareness. You know, you're the handler, you're the owner. It's your responsibility to put your dog through the paces and and account for all of those circumstances. And if you think about it, that's a long list of things to consider. So take your time. You know, do it right. And I think really you'd surprise yourself at how quick you have the finished product because you're thorough and because you've got a good relationship with that dog, you're, you're, you're keeping that dog happy and confident along the way. That's critical. And by going this route and really paying attention to the dog, reading the dog, like we've talked about setting the dog up for success, you, you're always going to see failure. Like there's always going to be a step backwards here and a step backwards there. It happens. It's part of life. It's moving forward and training through it and making sure the dog knows what's going on. But I feel if you are consistent and you actually do train to like avoid these holes and make sure there's no holes in your plan and break it down like you've said, you're going to be just far more successful with far less massive setbacks. Yeah. You're going to have salts. You'll have small setbacks. Everyone does. Puppies, puppies and older dogs, they'll occasionally test you. They'll occasionally just be a bonehead. Like it just happens sometimes. Like I've seen it like from really good dogs that were professionally trained. And all of a sudden the dog's like, I don't want to sit today. Like, or at least right yeah, well, now it didn't want to. It, like, that's the other thing. Don't ever underestimate the value of those basics. If it's a day you don't have a lot of time, make them sit. Challenge their steadiness. Throw some bumpers. Make them sit there. Let them pick one up. And even if you end it, it's just a reiteration of the control, the reward, the, you know, I mean, one of, one of my buddies who, who has trained some dogs for me, we've trained together. We, we became friends over dogs. I mean, at the very least, he spends a lot of time on that. And people will be like, oh, man, you're not getting them in the field. You're not doing that. But control and obedience and, and really what it is is it's a teamwork exercise. You know, you're, it's a dance partner. And, and those are rehearsals. Those are rehearsals. You sit. You, you do this. You heal. You get on this place board. Now go to this place board. Cast to this place board. Go back over there and wait for your – those things sound so tedious, and they are, but it's a dance. It's a routine, and it's a, it's a thing where that dog just learns that, you know, I, I just – I dance with you, and whatever's going on around me doesn't matter. And pretty soon, there's not a lot of hunting scenarios that, that will affect that dog long term. So, um, yeah, I think we nailed it. I mean, I, I, I love talking about this stuff because it's an all-breed thing. I don't care what birds you hunt. I don't care what dogs you run the the message is the same agreed and man i mean i've seen a lot of good dogs out there trained by somebody that has no idea what they're doing but you know what they did they took their time they did the the hardest part of showing up every day and doing the work at the end of the day right. i mean if you're doing it wrong but you're consistent and the dog gets it who's to what's say who's yeah, to say who it's cares? wrong then like oh, maybe right. you you taught the dog sit in a way that nobody's ever like ever like that's never going to work but the dog sits at the end of the day, the dog sits and stays because, like, the way you taught it makes no sense to me or you or any other person. But it worked in your situation. It wasn't yep. wrong. Then, it then was wrong. So be it. So be it. You got a nice dog. Enjoy it. And and you know what? I mean, the harder you train and the smarter you train, the more you're going to hunt, the more you're going to enjoy that dog. And, and ultimately, that's the deal. I mean, you know, 
someone listens to a podcast like this because they really enjoy being around the sport and the dogs. And, and so everyone understands what we're talking about, but we also get in a rush and we get behind on training and we try to compensate by pushing, you know, and I, I'll, I guess my last comment probably, cause I know we're closing in on an hour and a half. Yeah. I mean, utilize the help of a professional, even on a appointment basis or pay them for a phone call. Honestly, sure. I mean, these guys will talk you off the ledge because they've seen it all and they know it's not as big of a deal as it seems. I mean, it has helped me immensely knowing professional trainers and picking their brain. I mean, I'm, I'm training up at Dale Creek uh, gun dogs in, in Burlington, Wisconsin, and they're an all breed facility. They've got credentials in every breed you can think of. And they challenge me, but they treat me right. You know, they've welcomed me with open arms. They've got birds. They've got the resources. Why do it without them? You know, I mean, right. they can they can give me an edge and my dog an edge. And sure, you pay for it. It's a business. Right. But I mean, honestly, don't I'm all about doing things yourself. But if you want to compensate for the lack of time and the lack of detail that you can give your dog, you know, protect that investment and get some real help. And if you're and if you're at a weird stumbling point and like. I know we talk that sometimes progression might not might take a while and you need to be patient. But you also have to recognize, like, maybe you're not able to to teach this part. Maybe you realize at some point, maybe I'm not the right person to do. Like, reach out to a professional trainer. There's multiple options. Like, plenty yeah. of people do. Like, plenty of trainers now have session training where you can pay for a half hour, an hour of their time. That's you my point. It them. doesn't have to be a big monthly rate. Go for right. 30 minutes, and at least they'll give you some homework, and it's still do it yourself. And yeah, exactly. yeah, absolutely. Now, if you don't have one nearby, you're in the day and age of of uh, Patreon and all these different things where, I mean, there's trainers that'll literally FaceTime you and watch what you're doing. And sometimes it's not about having them do the work, but having them go, okay, try this. Sure. You know, they, they, they've got a fix for everything. Whereas you have one tool in your toolbox and they've got 40. So, you know, sometimes you got to try something different, but utilize breed clubs, utilize, uh, field trial and hunt test clubs, uh, training groups, professional trainers. I mean, the internet's great, but it's a rabbit hole. At the end of the day, right. you can't train a dog on the internet. You got to get out, get your hands on that dog and work through problems and be patient, go slow. And that's it, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I really love talking about this. I appreciate the chance to, to reiterate some of this. I appreciate you coming on. And I really like how we focused on the mental trainer side of this. Like a lot of these, yeah. I feel like a lot of shows just going to like, here's how you teach sit this, that, and other thing. And like, we really stayed focused on like the mental side of this as a trainer and setting your dog up for success, which is exactly what I was hoping for. Cause this really builds off that first episode of like setting behaviors and rewarding good behavior out of a puppy yeah. and like how to pick that puppy. And like, this is the next step of taking your mental game to the point where this is what I need to be constantly thinking as I work through my basic obedience or formal obedience or wherever I am in my training, this goes on for the rest of training. Like these mental steps and this mental attitude and is really what's going to set up your dog for that finished product, which is what you want in your mind. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, I, I'm glad we went there because it's, it's probably one of the hardest things to do is to check yourself at the door, you know, and, right. and let them be the priority, not you. And, uh, it's good for me just to talk about and say out loud because tomorrow when I get a dog out, you know, I want to make sure that that's what I'm doing. So I, I think everyone needs to just, man, have fun with it and, and take the pressure off yourself and you're, you're going to ascend faster. Agreed. hundred percent. 
anything you want to follow anything up i mean um uh, i know you're out of your instagram page i don't know if you want a facebook page call it your kennel all that stuff Oh yeah, South Fork Retrievers. Although I probably need to change the name soon if we're going to be doing some pointing dog stuff. Maybe we'll go South Fork Kennels. But South Fork Retrievers, uh, we have a website, SouthForkRetrievers.com. We have South Fork Retrievers on Facebook, literally just South Fork Retrievers, and then uh, at South Fork Retrievers on Instagram. Social media is big for us. We get a lot of engagement. We share a lot of pictures from training and of our puppies and uh, the field. You know, we love to show our clients in the field. Social media is cracking down on us a little bit. We can't really, you know, promote our puppies or our breedings, which, okay, fine. Uh, but we do like to promote our dogs and what they what sure. they do with our clients and our families that, that give us a chance to be their breeder. So uh, if anyone has questions or concerns, I'm, I'm more than willing to answer an email or a phone call. And again, I, I love the chance to get out and talk with you and focus on the Wisconsin uh, clientele because we're all neighbors and, and uh, you know, training together, using the same grounds, hunting the same grounds. So yeah, everyone, you know, find these training groups and, and work towards having better dogs. Absolutely. And I'll put all the links to your kennel, Facebook, Instagram, all in your website, all in the show description. I really appreciate you coming on. It's been a great conversation. I was really looking forward to this and it did not miss. So yeah, thanks, thank, man. I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in and until next time, keep chasing that experience. Thanks for tuning in to another killer episode here on Paddle and Finn. Be sure to drop a five-star rating, a thumbs up, or smash that subscribe button on any platform you're listening in on. Be sure to check us out on Waypoint TV, waypointtv.com. Make sure you sign up for the Fantasy Kayak Fishing League at paddleandfin.com forward slash fantasy. You could support this show through Patreon, patreon.com forward slash paddleandfin. Don't forget to check out the website, paddleandfin.com. Catch us on YouTube. If you got a question, comment, or want to see a future guest on the show, be sure to email us at paddleandfin at gmail.com. Shout out to our show supporters, Yak Gadget. You can check out all the fine kayak accessories at yakgadget.com. Pelican Professional. For all your cases, coolers, and lighting needs, go to pelican.com. Rocktown Adventures your Midwest premier paddle sports destination, go to rocktownadventures.com. Eastport Marina, the beautiful destination on Dale Hollow Lake. If you're looking for lodging, kayaks, kayak accessories, or anything fishing related on the beautiful Dale Hollow Lake, go to eastport.info. Jigmasters Jigs, when in doubt, get the jig out. Go to jigmasters.com and fill your tackle boxes today.